0: Open your Bibles if you have them to Psalm 8. Psalm chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. In July uh, of 1969, July 20th, 1969 to be precise, Neil Armstrong from Apollo 11 descended that ladder. You can probably see the image in your mind if you really think about it. Him standing on that bottom step of the ladder and then stepping off of that bottom step. And his voice comes over the airwaves. This is one small step for a man. One giant leap for mankind. That scene is iconic. As we think about it, how amazing that really is. Now, of course, you know, I'm far too young to have seen it live. Though I wish I could have. I do remember, my dad is somewhat of a pack rat, and I do remember opening up a, 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 a suitcase, an old suitcase of his, wondering what was in it. And it was just a stack of old newspapers. That's what pack rats do. They, they don't just keep things in a frame. They put them in a suitcase, of all things. And uh, there was a Dallas Morning News there on top. Yellowed from age, and it said, Neil Armstrong walks on the moon, or some, some clever title, I'm sure. I remember looking at that, like a holding a piece of history. This is amazing. If you really think about the ingenuity and know-how that went into putting a man on the moon, it's incredible. Space travel has always been so exciting to me. I've always thought about going into space. What an amazing thing that is. And I think, you know, when I retire one day, long in the future, maybe by that point, Space Force will need chaplains, you know, so I can get on the USS Enterprise. And there's plenty of people that want to send me into space as it is, so I'm sure Uh, (laughs) I'll be excited about that. In our passage this morning, David praises the God of creation. And he's looking at the majesty of all that God has made. And he's using it as a reason to praise and glorify the name of the Lord. Let's read our passage this morning. Psalm 8. To the the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a marvel this passage is to us and how much it resonates in our hearts right now. Just looking at creation, we know You're worth it. We pray that as we think about deeply this text in front of us. As we explore its meaning, you would drive it down deep into our hearts. As we talk about even difficult things, I pray that you would prepare us even now for those things, that when we hear them, they might resound with us, maybe convict us, certainly present a path forward for us pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in the first book of Psalms. So, Psalms is divided into five books. If you go through the book of Psalms, you'll see that it's clearly divided there. It tells you that this is book one that we're in. Psalm 1 to 41 is all under book one. It all falls under that, that one heading of book one. And the significance of that is that All of the Psalms are gathered together. They're put together with a consistent theme running throughout them. And so book one of Psalms, Psalm 1 to 41, its main purpose is about establishing God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through his anointed king, which we've said is originally David, but is ultimately Jesus. So he has put his king on his hill and he has established his rule and his reign through that king, originally that was David, ultimately that is Jesus. So, God's kingdom, we saw even back as far as Psalm chapter 2, is established, where you got the nations that are raging, they're uh, com- combative, and they're seeking to overthrow and plotting against uh, overthrowing the Lord's authority. And he sets his king on his holy hill in Zion. He puts him right there on the holy hill and everybody is in the midst of plotting and raging against the Lord, seeking to overthrow his authority. And that's, that's his solution to installing his kingdom there. Originally David, ultimately Jesus. But then from Psalm 3 to Psalm 7, where we've been for the last few weeks, David has more or less been on the run for his life. He has been surrounded by enemies. He's been praying that his enemies would get the sharp end of a long stick, if you know what I mean. He's been asking the Lord for that. He's been praying to the Lord as if he is talking to his enemies, challenging them to repent from their sins, to really consider how they have sinned against the Lord and repent and sinned against Him, actually, and challenging them to repent. So here is God's king, placed on Zion, His holy hill. We might say something like Capitol Hill. Right? He's placed on his holy hill, governing. He's answering the raging nations. And then for the last five psalms, this same king has been on the run for his life. On the run from his enemies. Including in Psalm 3, which is immediately following Psalm 2, David is literally running for his life where Solomon is chasing after him. In our psalm this morning, we get a little reprieve from David running from his enemies as we, we pause to consider the majesty and the glory of the Lord. And so you'll notice this psalm opens and it actually closes with that same refrain. "O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you grew up in a Baptist church like I did, you're probably singing that song in your in your head that I couldn't get out of my head this whole week is, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But the reason this psalm is placed here right after Psalm 7 is because if you look back at verse 17 of chapter 7, David makes a vow to the Lord. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the most high so he makes a vow there at the end of psalm chapter 7 the very last verse of psalm 7 that he then is going to fulfill in psalm 8 so this psalm has been neatly arranged right behind psalm 7 to give us that refrain of praise and reproof from David running from his enemies. So this psalm, Psalm 8, our text this morning is a fulfillment of that vow that David has just made. It's praising the name of the Lord. But interestingly enough, this psalm does not merely praise the name of the Lord. It sets the Lord over and above it all. He's transcendent. He's above it all. But then David helps us understand where humanity fits in underneath the rule and the reign, the majesty of His name in all the earth. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens. In other words, God is majestic in all the earth and He is glorious above the heavens. And in fact, to address Him as our Lord, where David says that, our Lord, It's David's way of saying he is king over all. This is the way you address majesty. This is the way you address a king, saying our Lord. So verse 1 tells us right away that God is over it all and through it all and glorious ruler of it all. But under the vast canopy of God's glory and His majesty and rule over all creation, David is going to help us understand humanity's place where we as human beings fit in to that rule and he's going to make it really simple for us he's going to divide this psalm into two big sections the first is understanding man's humility and the next his responsibility his humility and his responsibility so that's all you don't have to write down any points or anything like that it's just his humility And man's responsibility, first his humility, in these first four verses is exalting the true king over all the earth. And he's showing us two easily observable places where the Lord gets his glory. And the first is from infants. That's admittedly a little weird in verse 2. What is he really talking about here? But he says in Psalm 8 two, just look there with me. It says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That seems like a strange verse at first in one that if you, if you read Psalm 8 just straight through, it sort of sticks out kind of like a sore thumb. It's a little bit strange. What is he, what is he talking about here? And as I said, David has been on the run from his enemies from Psalm 3 all the way through Psalm 7. And they've occupied a lot of his concern. They've kept him up at night. He has spent many endless nights in grief, uh, crying and and just in, in pain and agony and been weeping on his bed. And so what better way then, as he comes in to praise the Lord, to establish how glorious the true King over all creation is, than to show with one verse how still his enemies are before him with the voice of tiny babies. Even small little child is capable of praising the Lord. There's no more human being more fragile than a little baby and yet God receives it says strength in our text from these infants when you see that word strength there it's probably something like praise we we get a better understanding of that when Jesus actually quotes that verse in Matthew 21:16 he says this out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise God has put it in their hearts to praise him, if you 've ever been around a kid as they look around at creation it 's unfathomable to them that it would have just come about. This had to be made. If you just talk to a child you 'll see that. But in that passage that Jesus quotes that, that verse, quote, cites that psalm. It's in Matthew right on the heels of Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into town on a donkey and then he immediately gets off the donkey and he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. Remember where he turns over the tables of the money changers and he's doing miraculous works. He's healing people there in the temple and the children see the miracles. And you know what's interesting about the children seeing the miracles as opposed to the adults? The children see the miracles happening and that's enough for them. They see the lame walk and they go, yep, that's the guy. (laughs) And so they start praising Him and they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. That's literally what they say. Hosanna to the Son of David. And so the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests that are standing around, once they hear the children say that, they become indignant at Jesus. Jesus. And they actually go over to him and they have the nerve to ask him, do you hear what these are saying? You hear that coming from them? In other words, do you understand what they're saying? It's one thing, if you want these adults to follow you, adults can make their own decision, that's fine. If they want to follow you, they're ridiculous, but whatever. If you want the adult, if the adults pray, okay, whatever. But think about the children Today we might say, or we might hear, this is tantamount to child abuse, right? To which Jesus basically says, God silences his enemies by praise of babies and infants. While the king's enemies, think about this for a minute, All the enemies of the king, the Pharisees and the scribes, what do they have to do to get Jesus crucified? They've got to mount up the crowd. They've got to work the crowd. Got to explain to them, this is why Jesus needs to be crucified, don't you know? And eventually they're whipped up into a frenzy. God, he has armies of infants ready to sing his praise. He doesn't need to recruit. They're born into it. The Lord extracts glory and praise from infants, but then also from creation. Look at what he says in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. All of creation is evidence of the magnitude of the glory of God. I want you to just consider this for just a moment. We have probably a little bit more knowledge. I think now... David does in terms of insight into what goes into creation. We studied it a little bit longer. We have more tools to see bigger things that are that are even more amazing. Carl Sagan once estimated that, that there were really only two qualifications. Back in the 50s, there were really only two qualifications that were required in order to sustain life on a planet. And he said the first thing was that the planet had to, be, had to have certain stars around it. So you think of us in relation to the sun, the star that's, that's nearest to us. It, it has to provide some warmth and things like that. But then the second, which is related to that, is that the planet has to be a certain distance from that star so that it doesn't burn up and it doesn't get too hot and things like that. But Sagan, the atheist, thought those were the only two qualifications that were necessary for life. So we began looking. Well, surely, if that's the case, then there must be lots out there. In fact, in the 50s, it was widely circulated that one out of every thousand stars in the universe could have a planet around it that would support life under those two conditions that Carl Sagan laid out. So obviously, if that's the case, then let's dive into the deep beyond and let's see that we should find a lot of places where life is. Since then, through a deeper study of creation than Carl Sagan had access to, or maybe even wanted to access, man has been, uh, how shall we say, a humbled, maybe even just a little bit, at uh, what is out there. We've seen in, that in fact there are many other things, necessary for life than what Sagan initially thought. For instance, we've come to see that the size of our planet is very, very important. In fact, if Earth was just a little bit bigger, it would have a higher gravitational pull, which would mean for you and me that the scale would read a bigger number. None of us would be excited about that, all right? So praise the Lord that it's the size that it is. But also, if it was a little bit larger, then gases and things like that would have a higher gravitational pull and would be stronger. And so things like methane and ammonia would sit much closer to the surface and likely kill all of us. So the scale probably wouldn't matter. If the earth was a little bit smaller, thus having less gravitational pull, water would not remain on the earth and would then instead dissipate into the earth's atmosphere. Now, some evolutionary scientists might come back and say, well, we would obviously evolve to the point where we would be able to stand the methane and the ammonia and we would be able to live without water to which I would just simply say, well, show me proof that there is creatures out there that can live with that kind of ammonia and methane and without water, and I'll wait. It's theory. It's just conjecture. They just assume that that's what we would do. They don't know. But let's think deeper for just a second even about the nature of water itself. we're We're not diving deep into science here. We're just looking at some things very much on the surface. Imagine, just for a second, water, as a substance freezes, it becomes more dense, with the exception of water. As water freezes, it becomes less dense, which is why ice floats. So as an example, if if you had uh, little chunks of frozen argon sitting inside liquid argon, the frozen argon would sink to the bottom. Water has this strange property that as water molecules reach 39.2 degrees Fahrenheit, they begin to become less dense. And so if not for that strange property, because you may be thinking, well, why does that even matter? Well, if not for that strange little property that water has, then all of the water in lakes, oceans, and rivers would all freeze at the bottom Up, which would kill all fish and all crustaceans, which I personally wouldn't really mind that much, but I'm sure some people would. But also the polar ice caps, which regulate the earth's temperature, would be eviscerated, and then eventually we would all obviously burn up and and die. Not only that, three-fourths of the earth's surface is made up by water, and if water didn't have the high boiling point that it has, didn't hold the heat as well as it did, and didn't dissolve other substances, all of these incredibly rare properties that water has life on earth would not exist, period. These are things we've come to see over time that it requires to sustain life. Look, we could go on and on, on and on and on, about all the many properties this planet has that makes it uniquely suitable for life. Things that I mentioned are only summary. They're just a the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. You can, you can look up more details online. You can, there's TED Talks on it where people that are evolutionary, they totally bought into the whole evolutionary model, not creation, just evolution, they'll argue like they're reading the book of Genesis. And at the end you're going, how do you not see that this tells us about creation? That's another sermon for another day. There's things like even if the precise angle of the hydrogen molecules as they freeze just freezes in such a way that that makes it possible. It's just unbelievable. The point is that the secular world expects me to believe that all of this just happened. That it just came together. And it blows past the boundaries of possibility that, this, that things around us were just randomly ordered and put there, just randomly, that would be suitable for life. The ocean has crashed into the shore of all the beaches around the world a zillion times by now, and I know of no time that it built a sandcastle. In fact, every time I walk up on a sandcastle, I think, somebody's been here. I never think the ocean just built that, ever. And that's David's point. He doesn't have the intricate details, maybe, that we do now. But he looks at the moon and the stars, and he concludes, what is man that you are mindful of him? It appears, Lord, that this universe is finely tuned. And here I am. What am I that you would care for me? Looking at the glory of God that is spread throughout all the earth, everything from the farthest star you could conceive of to the tiniest baby in existence, it's Filled with his praise, and yet the universe is ordered so that this speck of dust called man can live. It's obviously ordered so we can live, you and me. And that's humbling, is it not? It brings to this moment in verse 4 where he asks the question out of humility why would you care for us? Why would you care about me? But then he answers it as he concludes this psalm that it's evidence that mankind has a tremendous responsibility. You cannot look at humanity without a sense that we are different from the rest of creation. As much as culture would love to take humans and put them on the same level as every other creature out there, it is plain by simple analysis that mankind is different than a chicken. In fact, God has given him glory and honor as David says. These are attributes of royalty. The crown jewel of creation is humanity. There's never been a deer wandering through the field that looked up at the stars and thought, oh my goodness. You know, if we could just build a a great big rocket and get out there, we could see some of this stuff. Not one time. He's given a responsibility. God has given a responsibility of dominion to humanity. Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, he says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then in verse 28, he says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We were created as far back as the earliest pages of the Bible. We were created with a mandate of having dominion, exercising care over all of God's creation. The meaning, Genesis 1 Gives to being made in the image of God is that we have a rule and authority over the created order. Over the fish, the sheep, the oxen, the birds, the beasts. Both David and Genesis mentions those. We have a, now mind you, it is a derived authority. That means the authority rests with God alone, and He has entrusted to us this authority. So we are ruling as a derived authority. We rule the works of God's hand on His behalf. In other words, we rule as He would have ruled. That's our mandate. That was Adam and Eve's mandate. Which they failed to do. But this is the great tragedy of the fallen age that we live in, isn't it? We have this mandate of dominion. And yet we still have this feeling, this deep sense that this mandate of care placed on us is something we can't work out. We can't seem to get it right. It keeps being a misfire for us. This was seen perfectly this past Saturday, if you were paying attention. There's this giant rocket that was sitting out on a pad in Florida. And everybody was getting their phones or their iPads or their TVs tuned to this launch of SpaceX Sending two people, the first time in some years, two Americans on an American-made rocket, sending them up into space. There's this massive team of people that all came together and they're working with the short-term goal of getting these men to the space station and then the long-term goal of getting them to Mars. Why? Because we have a deep urge to see what's out there. That's why. But as the rocket lifts from the earth higher and higher, all the astronauts had to do, if they could, was look out the window. They would see every major city in America smoking from the fires of the nights before. What irony! Our desire is to go up into space and exercise dominion, have authority, and yet where we actually live is on fire. But if God has crowned each person with glory and honor and worth, and given each person made in His image, dominion to steward creation, then our inability to live with each other is a rejection of the mandate given to us by God Himself and is therefore a rejection of the glory of God in creation. I watched in horror, much like the rest of you I'm sure, video of George Floyd being choked to death by Minnesota police officers. Several weeks before that, we saw a video of Ahmaud Arbery being chased down and shot at point-blank range like he was some kind of rabbit animal. And all that, that video was enough to turn your stomach if you saw it. The details of that event that have come out since then have been more stomach-churning, have somehow made it worse. In between those two was the case of Breonna Taylor, which is unbelievable in its own right. Since then, we've had many protests, some peaceful, some chaotic. Some people are clearly grieved and they're coming to the town square to protest peacefully as well they should. Other people are clearly opportunistic mm-hmm. and just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. And, and sometimes I, th- I think I'm not made for this. I can't bear... Knowing all of the tragedy, all over the world, at any given moment, I'm not meant to hold all that in my head. And I wonder just how much our devices and our access are really just destroying us. Because we just, we're just not meant to be able to hold it all in. And so I've thought many times since then, what in the world is someone like me in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, supposed to say to all of this? What am I supposed to do with all of this information, with all of this happening around the world? What am I even supposed, how do I even respond to this? All that follows is my own rationale only way I can begin to make sense of it, as best I can see this mandate we've been given from Scripture, I think our first response has to be empathy. It has to be empathy. I want you to imagine, for just a moment, we all take out our phones one day, or whatever way you access the news, and we see a headline on one of the articles. And it says, famed evangelist dies in altercation with police. And we click on the video, and there's someone that we would all recognize. I don't have any particular person in mind, but a notable person, like you know, kind of like a Billy Graham type that, you know, you recognize his voice, you see his face, you know him, and as best you can tell. As best you can know somebody through a screen, you you are pretty sure he's a Christian. I'm talking that kind of person. And he's standing on the street corner and a crowd begins to form around him as he's sharing the gospel with a few people there and he begins to kind of sort of get up on a little soapbox and he begins to preach a little bit. And the crowds that are gathering around him, some are cheering him, saying amen, clapping at some of the things that he says. Some are jeering him, saying, shut up, go away, calling him names like bigot and things like that. And in the process, it gets a little heated. crowd gets a little bit riotous. You might think of Paul in Ephesus, where the riots kind of gather up in in the city as the preaching of the gospel, you know, like sometimes it does. And in the process, cops walk over to him and, and tell the evangelist, stop, just quit. And there's some back and forth we see in the video going on, back and forth, where the guy says, no, I'm not going to stop. This is the gospel, and I'm going to preach it. And I have a constitutional right to preach it. And so I'm going to. And he, he begins preaching it again. And one thing leads to another, and eventually the cop has the evangelist face down on the street and then proceeds to choke him for nine minutes until he dies. The cop ignores calls for help, cries of, I can't breathe, just ignores it completely. And we watch him die right there on the screen. Now, my point is not to compare George Floyd to an evangelist. That's not my point. My point is, how would that make us feel? we watch that how would it make you feel how many of us would feel like the persecution of Christians had come to America how many of us would feel like that the next day well it's here how many sermons do you think would be preached on that following Sunday or the preacher would get up there and he would say get ready Christians they're coming for you too They're coming for all of us. How would you feel if you were engaging your atheist friend and one of your atheist friends said about the event, honestly, you're overreacting. And the cops this year have only killed one Christian. crazy that you're getting so worked up about it. I'll tell you what I would do if I was talking with that friend or on that following Sunday when I stand up behind this pulpit on this stage. I would open up a history book and I would show you and him for the last 2,000 years a history that shows the sheer volume of blood spilled on the earth by Christian martyrs. I would take my friend, I would take you, through the steps that society goes through before it begins taking Christian lives. First, philosophical persecution. Then, marginalization. Then, outright violence. I would explain to you and to him how every government in the In church history, has sought to do this at one time or another. And then I would make the case it could happen today. Imagine you're explaining all this to him, and he tells you, Yeah, I get it. Jewish lives matter too. In fact, all lives matter. In fact, they do. That's true. But is that what we're talking about right now? I would submit to you that when some people, I'm not going to make a blanket generalization across everybody's if they all think the same way, but particularly some African American people, watch the TV or Twitter and and they see George Floyd, they see Ahmaud Arbery, they see Breonna Taylor, and they might feel that same sense of anxiety welling up in them. They might even go back to the history books and they might show you history of slavery, particularly in this country. Well, but that was done in 1863, right? With the Emancipation Proclamation, but then followed closely behind that, Jim Crow, redlining. There was a time in this country where African American people were considered less than human, for Pete's sake. Imagine how it feels when someone knowing the history, understanding the history, replies back, all lives matter. That's a true statement. But if you're looking at the history books, not all lives were considered less than human not that long ago. But then there are facts. None of us in this room were alive during the time of slavery in this country. But nobody out there was either. Most of us weren't alive during Jim Crow and the like, all the other things. And the ones that were alive during that time likely were not in a place or position to really affect much change or have any kind of act toward these policies. And there are a host of people out there in our present days. another fact. A host of people out there that seem bent on having white people repent for sins their ancestors, who are long since dead, committed. Now, being made to repent for someone else's sins is also injustice. Then there are others whose only concept of justice, mainly because they don't know the Lord, Their only concept of justice is retribution, payback, an eye for an eye. Let's turn the tables, they might say, and have white people take a turn through slavery, through economic reparations, through critical race theory, all of those things. And that's also injustice. And if there's nothing else that history should teach us, it's that injustice plus injustice will never equal justice. Justice, Injustice, I should say, is always antithetical to the gospel. Always. But I would encourage you, because many of you have heard those arguments and probably were already thinking about those arguments before I even said them out loud. I would encourage you to not let the good arguments be drowned out by the loud arguments. The good arguments people are making about these deaths are mostly made by friends people sitting across the table from you not people on Facebook and on the news and the news is only going to circulate the loud arguments not necessarily the good ones The good arguments are by people watching George Floyd get murdered, Ahmaud Arbery chased down, and looking at the history books and saying, this right here, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, is is exactly how that slavery in the history books comes back. That's how it happens again. Is when we watch that happen and we go... Big deal. And I think I can empathize with that feeling. I certainly can. Even from someone who has never personally experienced slavery, they're watching these deaths and they're thinking back on all the times they've been pulled over and just asked to step out of their car for seemingly no apparent reason. I can empathize with that feeling. I can empathize with the peaceful yet emotional protesting. Not the rioting and looting, mind you, but the protesting. I can empathize with that. More often than not, when things like this happen, tell me if I'm wrong, we are more concerned with running to our political corners. Because... Politics is our idol, period. Maybe a thought that went through your mind when I started talking about this was, here we go, here we go, complete with maybe an eye roll inside your mind, I don't know. There are about a thousand different camps when something like this happens, about a thousand different camps that begin speaking into this situation. Proposing solutions, all kinds of other things. And when that happens, there are certain phrases that if a pastor says that will immediately, in the mind of the congregation, throw him into one of those political camps. As an example, social justice. Saying that, Throws you into a camp. Oh, I know where he's coming from. Another phrase: Black Lives Matter. Thrown into a camp. Immediately. And it immediately associates him with some political activist group of similar names. But I can unequivocally say that I am for social justice and unequivocally say that black lives matter because those ideas don't belong to a political group any more than the rainbow belongs to the LGBT. Those are God's ideas. He laid those down before the foundation of the earth. He determined the value and worth of a human being. That's God's idea. Social justice is God's idea. Read the prophets. It makes us squirm a little bit, doesn't it, when we read the prophets? Because we're like, wow, that sounds a lot like America. Yeah. And while the inherent worth of all lives is also God's idea, at this moment in time, Many in the African-American community are not stating Black Lives Matter. They're asking you the question, do Black Lives Matter? Christian, feel free to say yes without feeling obligated to a political group. We don't represent their politics. We live in the kingdom of God. I represent God's politics, and that's God's idea. They absolutely matter. And when they ask you that question, do black lives matter to you? Think to yourself for just a moment. If your wife was hurt by you neglecting her, and she came up to you and she said, don't I matter to you? How do you think she would respond if you said, baby, all wives matter to their husbands? Wouldn't it sound like you were avoiding answering the question? Mm -hmm. Suspiciously avoiding answering the question? Our first step is empathy. I don't represent their politics, I don't represent anybody else's politics but Jesus. That's it. I just want to say what he said. That's it. I don't think... Let me just state as true. I don't think anyone in this room is a racist. And I think that everybody in this room would agree with everything that I just said. And I hope that's true. If I did think someone was a racist, we would already be walking through the steps of church discipline by now. But I don't. I also... Don't know what was in the heart of Derek Chauvin and the other three officers when they did what they did in Minnesota. I don't know what was in their heart. Nor do I think their actions are indicative of the vast majority of our police forces that are out there. I don't think that's true. And I'm not about to have you recite anything, repeat after me with anything. I'm not about to have you kneel for anything. I'm not advocating for certain policy positions, although I would argue that the vast majority of what I've heard circulating around secular media and social media is rubbish. If racism really is the problem, it cannot be legislated away. Yet when you have only one God, which is politics, that's the only thing you can think to solve the problem. It's not going to work. The reason that I'm bringing this up is first because the value of each human life is right in the center of this text. And if we can't value each human life, then our stewardship over the rest of creation is absolutely worthless, and I would even argue fraudulent. It's as dumb as that rocket going into the sky when all the cities are burning. But second if we as Christians can't wrap our minds around empathy to our African American brothers and sisters that are hurt, much less the rest of the world, just our brothers and sisters, then I'm afraid our claim to represent Christ, to uphold His righteousness, and claim to stand for God's justice on the earth will be found just as fraudulent on Judgment Day. best part of this passage is that it's applied straight to Jesus in the New Testament. If this psalm sounds familiar to you, it's because the author of Hebrews picks up on verses four to six and quotes them in the book of Hebrews chapter two and applies them directly to Jesus. And he explains it after he quotes that passage, he explains it in Hebrews 2, 8, and 9 this way, he says, now putting everything In subjection to him, he left, God left nothing outside of Jesus' control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might take death for everyone The reality of our state currently is that although we were given dominion and glory and honor it's marred by sin and we could never actually realize our god-given responsibility Give us 2000 more years We'll come up with whole new wicked things we can do, but never exercising the dominion of God on this earth. So the eternal Son of God takes on human flesh. He lives perfectly as the true Davidic King. He suffers the wrath of God on the cross, and then He died and rose again. And what did He do when He rose again? He ushered in a new creation. A new creation in which people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every tongue will be restored to a place of perfect dominion over creation only through Christ. Perfect dominion restored through Christ. God is right now, at this very moment, in the process of bringing people to himself through salvation in Jesus Christ. So first, if you are in Christ, then what does Paul say? You've become part of a new creation. Anyone who is in Christ, he's a new creation. Mm -hmm. Old politics? Bye. New creation. And you have a responsibility of exercising his dominion Remember, it's a derived authority. We're exercising Christ's dominion over the rest of creation. How do we do that? First, by telling others of the possibility that they too might have salvation, that they too might be restored to this place only in Christ, that they can receive eternal life through repentance of sin, they can have salvation. And second, also important, emulating the works of Jesus. That's important. Emulating the works of Christ is exercising His dominion that He's given to us as Christians over the rest of the earth. Jesus was ruled by love and empathy. Notice, He doesn't walk up to the beggar and doesn't see him lying there on the floor lame and say, well, sure, you can't walk. Bend down, pick up his coffee cup and look in it and say, but people are providing for you. Quit complaining. I mean, seriously. No. He says, rise and walk. He says, your sins are forgiven. He tells him, go and sin no more. And to those that are weary, he says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and find rest for your soul. Church, we must face the reality that our command in Scripture, if I'm operating by the politics of the kingdom of God, my command in Scripture is not to get into a war of statistics on Facebook. It's not. It's love and empathy and ministry to the hurting. Vaulting ourselves Into space on a rocket ship, as fantastic as that is, feels right now like we're trying to escape a world ravaged by sin. But even if we get to Mars and we colonize it, all we're going to do is export our sin from Earth to Mars. The fires on Earth will only be extinguished by the dominion of Christ invading the hearts of our neighbors. But let me ask you, what value do our words of hope in Christ have if we cannot weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn? Your words are empty and meaningless. What good is it if we can't empathize with those in grief, if we can't kneel down beside them and say, rise and walk in newness of life, what good is it if we can't say, like David here, God cares for us, and He cares for you too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father our words are meaningless without really taking them into our heart thinking about them and dealing with them without talking with real flesh and blood people who are perhaps different than us on the other side from us Empty and meaningless. Foster in our hearts empathy, Lord. A desire to reach others. Build friendships. Yes, across racial divides. Give us an ability to see into the experiences of someone else. And allow mercy to lead in our lives. Let it be the strength of our hand, your mercy. Because the Lord knows the sins of George Floyd are no greater than mine. And I'm so grateful for your forgiveness. In Jesus name